This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. I feel your presence when I see your face. Oh Lord, I see your blessings when I seek your grace. Oh Lord, I feel so close to you when I call upon your Oh, Lord, you've been so good to me. 
Thank you. Thank you, Matt. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 2. Last week we were in the book of Genesis. Is that right? Anybody remember? Chapter 17. But we're going to go back to Genesis 2 and we're going to look at a very familiar story. In fact, if you haven't heard this story, this is probably your first time in church ever. Or you haven't paid attention when you've been in church. But it's probably the most familiar story in all of the Bible But as we did last week, we're going to focus on a truth that is not as familiar. Now, to help set up our lesson, as well as give you some information to help you in your own personal study of the Word, and and, and I hope that when you come here, that the message that you hear is not the only time that you're in the Word throughout the week. That's not enough. It's not enough. And so... um, this principle here will, will help you as you do your own personal study of the Bible. But there is a principle that's referred to as the rule of firsts. And what that means is that in God's Word, when something happens for the very first time, it generally is something that is super significant. Now, obviously, all of Scripture is important. We need to take into every, uh, take account of every word, but when there is a first, you need to pay attention to it. And as we look at this rule of first, we're going to look at the very first command that God ever gave. Some of you are surprised that there's something before the Ten Commandments, but this command was given by God way before the Ten Commandments. And we read it in Genesis chapter 2, Verse 15, and today I'm going to switch things around. I'm going to read this from the NIV instead of the NLT, New Living Translation, but New International Version. And it reads like this. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man. So here's the first commandment. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, I grew up as a church kid. Most of you know that. And without sounding arrogant, and I don't mean this uh, that way, but because of my upbringing, being in church multiple times every week, I I happen to know quite a bit about the church. I, I, I know the good. I know some bad, and I know a lot of ugly. You, you think you've seen hypocrisy? You know, we, we have people say, well, the church is just full of hypocrites. Without bragging, I think I've seen a lot more hypocrisy than you have. You think you've seen politics in the church? I, I probably have seen more than you have. I, I know the ugly games that, that some churches play. I, I know the songs. I, I, I know Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Anybody else know that song? Uh, a few of you. And when it comes to the Bible, even though I, I'm not a scholar, I promise you I'm not a scholar, but, but most of the time I can recognize 
most of the Bible stories in the Bible. And, and, and so when it comes to the story that we're studying today, I grew up hearing where God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and most of you know that story as well. But the question that I think a lot of people have is, okay, God, you created this amazing garden for Adam and Eve that was perfect in every way. And, and you gave attention to every detail and, and it was put there for the enjoyment of Adam and Eve. They could partake of anything except for one thing. And that was the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the question that a lot of people have is, is God, if you didn't want Adam and Eve to eat that fruit, why did you put that tree there in the first place? I mean, seriously, God, it's just like uh, like a cat and mouse game. And it's almost like God was saying, OK, let's see how long they last. Let's see how long they can stay away from that tree. Well, they stayed away five seconds or whatever. So why did God put that tree there in the first place, but then put up a no trespassing sign? Well, the reason for that, and if you've been raised in church, you, you know this, God created us as free moral agents. He, he did not want to create puppets. He could have, but as puppets, we would not have had that ability to choose to love God. And, and God did not want people to love Him out of obligation. But God wanted to people to love him because they wanted to. But, but having said that, God also gave us the choice to not serve God. So, so he wanted us to choose yes to love him, but, but he also gave us that choice no. And, and, and so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil gave Adam and Eve the ability to choose whether or not they would obey God. And, and again, if you've been raised in church, you've heard that preached many, many times. But anyway, back on point here, and, and you really need to focus on what I'm going to try to get across. And I've never preached on this before. In fact, I've never heard a sermon on this before. But uh, I, I pray that God will help me to, to get this truth across. The, the name of the forbidden tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the question is, what would happen if Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of that tree? Well, a couple of things. Verse 17, we read it said that they would die. Was this a physical death? No. It was a spiritual death. But, but the second thing, and, and this, you don't hear many messages on this, but, but the second thing that would take place by eating this fruit is that they would begin to have knowledge of good and evil. You say, okay, Joe, what does that mean? Well, it simply means that Adam and Eve would begin to have knowledge of things that God did not intend for them to have knowledge of. And, and they would begin to have knowledge and experience pain and suffering. They would begin to have knowledge of shame from being naked. Okay, then you really need to harness your ADHD ponies right now. Because I want you to follow this. All right, what would happen then if Adam and Eve did not eat from the tree as God had commanded them not to? Well, they would not have had that expanded knowledge. You say, I don't understand. Uh, so, so does that mean that they would be mentally handicapped? Uh, no, not one bit. 
And this is where we're getting to the crux of the matter. Uh, Adam and Eve would not have needed that expanded knowledge because God had in mind between them and himself a relationship of intimacy to where God would come to the garden and walk with them and talk with them and give them the necessary knowledge they needed in life. This was about having close intimacy or a high level of intimacy between God the Creator and mankind. Well, we know the story. Adam and Eve chose the path that led them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happened? Well, uh, th- this is really, really fascinating. And, and you can look at this as Bible trivia or you can look at this as something very significant. But it says in Genesis, moving to the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 23. And I'm trying to lay this whole background here and, and, and then we'll get into some truths here. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 23 says, So the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from Adam and his wife from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made after banishing them from the garden. Now, listen, the Lord God stationed mighty angelic beings to the east of Eden. So Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They were banished from the Garden of Eden. What direction did they go? East. Now, now this is the part that's so fascinating to me. And, and I was reading uh, from another author by the name of Jefferson Bethke. And he, he's written several books, uh, bestsellers, New York Times bestsellers. But, but he pointed out that after Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and they went east away from God's ideal, this seems to be then the theme for the rest of the book of Genesis. Mankind keeps moving further east away from God. Uh, another example is in, in Genesis chapter 4. So we're moving on. Genesis 4, remember when Cain kills his brother Abel. And he decides he better run because people were mad and they wanted to kill him. And so Cain takes off to relocate. And do you have any idea which direction he went? Well, let's read about it in Genesis four sixteen. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Adam and Eve were banished. They went east of the garden. And here we see Cain is going further east. Mankind is getting further and further away from God. Well, this trend continues as we come to Genesis chapter 11 this time. Uh, this is where human pride was reaching an all-time high. And, and what does the Bible say? Well, in, in verse 2 of chapter 11, it says that during this time of rebellion, the people, they're migrating eastward, getting farther away from God. And, of course, that culminated in the building of the Tower of Babel. Well, then after the Tower of Babel, remember how Abraham and his nephew Lot were in partnership with each other. And, but, but their flocks began multiplying and their shepherds were squabbling over the grass, available grass. And so Abraham said, Lot, we need to go our separate ways uh, so our livestock can have adequate grazing. Lot, you choose and I'll go the other way. And do you remember where Lot went? Genesis thirteen eleven. Lot chose that land for himself, the Jordan Valley to the east. 
which of course led him to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God eventually had to step in and, and rain down fire and brimstone from heaven because the level of sin had reached a level that God could no longer tolerate. So, so the book of Genesis began with mankind in the Garden of Eden having close intimacy with God and, and God would come down and, and, and into the garden and, and spend time with them, walk with them, talk with them, visit with them. But once they sinned, there was a continual progression of moving farther and farther away from the intimacy that God wanted to have with his children. But thank God we see this trend temporarily reversed through a man named Abraham. And if you've read the Bible, you, you perhaps remember how God issued a call to Abraham to a, he said, I want you to go to a, an unknown land. And Abraham was a man that loved God. And he said, God, I don't know where that place is, but, but my answer is yes, I will obey you and trust you. And what's so interesting here, as Abraham begins to follow and obey God, do you know what direction God takes him? West. And to me, this is so significant because Abraham is going back towards the garden. He's going back to that place of intimacy, walking with his creator. Let me give you one last example in the building of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. God specifically tells the Israelites to build the entrance of the temple on the east side. Which means that when they would walk into the temple, what direction would they be going? West. Now, I know you can take this kind of symbolism way too far. I, I understand that. But, but please know that ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and began moving away from intimacy with God, that, that God's goal has been to bring mankind back to that place of shalom, which is the word for peace in the book of Genesis. God wants us to have peace and He wants us to have, He wants intimacy with us. And so the question for all of us is, which path are we on? Are, are we on the path that will lead to intimacy with God? Are we heading further and further away from God? Well, there's something else I want us to notice. We talked about the rule of firsts, and I pointed out the first command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, but then God gives us another first. He gives us his first response to sin. And how did God respond to that sin? Well, you, you know what? If it would have been me, if I would have been God, I would have probably just snapped my fingers and, and wiped them off the face of the earth and said, you guys are history. I told you not to touch the tree. You lasted three verses. Say goodbye. It's over. But God in his mercy didn't do that. How did he respond? God asked a question. Now, now, why would God ask a question? He's God. He knows all the answers. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, he asked the question, Adam, wh where are you? And, of course, it was just a rhetorical question because God knew exactly where Adam was. But, but in asking that question, what God was really asking was, Adam, what, why did you leave me? You know, we had such a wonderful, intimate relationship here in the garden. And so God's first response to sin was not to zap them, but, but it's almost like God's heart is breaking. And, and he's saying, son, where, where are you? Why are you trying to hide from me? Well, Adam and Eve come out of hiding and say, God, we hid because we're naked. And, and that led to the second question God asked, 
who, who told you you were naked? I mean, they'd been naked the whole time. Um, who, who told you? Well, eating the fruit had brought them that awareness. It created a sense of shame. And God then asked the third question. Adam, did you eat of that forbidden fruit? And it's interesting here because the excuses begin. And, and Adam says, well, God, I, yeah, I, I admit that I did eat of the fruit, but, but the woman you gave me, she's the one that brought the fruit to me. And, and so I ate. In other words, God, I'm sorry, but it's my wife's fault. Well, God then turned to Eve and said, uh, you know, is that true? How could that, how could you do such a thing? Well, Eve learned from her husband, and she justified her actions. She said, well, yeah, God, I did do that, but the serpent tricked me. Or today we would have said the devil made me do it. And you've heard it, heard it said that Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure that the whole time God was thinking, Why? You know, why? When, when I made it so clear that you weren't to do that, why did you disobey? I mean, you knew my voice. We talked so many times. You knew my voice. And, and when you heard that other voice, you knew it wasn't my voice. Why did you listen? And by the way, just a little aside here, here's a way to distinguish God's voice over Satan's voice. If, I don't know if you ever had that problem, but, you, but it's like... Two voices, and, and you're saying, okay, w w which one of these is God? Which one is Satan? And, but if the voice is calling you out of hiding from God, that's a hint that is probably God's voice. But if it's a voice that's causing you to hide and, and to go into isolation, that's probably not the voice of God. And really, when you study the history of mankind down through the ages, not much has changed since Adam and Eve. We're still, we're still trying to hide. And, and throughout the Old Testament, God kept trying to raise up prophets to fix this broken world. But it seemed like almost every time, instead of those prophets being part of the solution, they became part of the problem. And, and man kept getting farther and farther away from God. But thank God, finally, in the book of Isaiah, like a beacon in the dark night, we find a ray of hope. We read of someone who would come that would restore that shalom, that, that peace. And, and not only would this one be able to clean up the outside, but this one would also be able to clean up the inside. And a few weeks ago, we talked in the Old Testament, almost every time something unclean came in contact with something clean, what would happen? Well, the clean would become dirty. In the Old Testament, unclean always won. But this is good news that when Jesus showed up, there is a drastic 180 degree shift because every time someone dirty comes in contact with Jesus, what happens? They become clean. All things pass away and they become new creatures in Christ Jesus. And I'm afraid that in that sense, many of us think we're still living in the Old Testament. You know, I'm too dirty for God and I'm not good enough for God. I want to just let you know, you can't be too dirty for God. You cannot sin big enough that grace cannot cleanse you. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound.
And I know there are some pretty big sins represented here. I, I just know by the stats that several of you probably, ladies, you probably had abortions. And I remember after one, one Sunday, I believe there were five different situations of abortions that the ladies felt they needed to just kind of come clean on and confess. And, but there are probably some abortions here that some of you are struggling with that shame and that guilt. And I know there are some of you here that you've probably been victims of sexual abuse. And in America, it's said that by the time someone finishes college, college age, one in three girls will have been sexually assaulted. And for guys, it's one out of every six. And I know that there are some people here today that have been involved in homosexuality. And when we look at those sins, those are things that we normally don't talk about because we hide them. They, they create deep wounds that we don't want anybody to know about. But, but please understand that Jesus specializes in healing deep wounds. The Japanese have a process by which... Uh, it's a really interesting process that... It's called kintsugi. I believe that's the way to pronounce it. But they repair broken and broken pottery and broken dishes. And they will take a strong lacquer and they will mix it with gold and silver dust. And, and then they will apply that where the break was and then put it back together again. And and, and if you can just kind of get the visual in, in, in your mind, when that bowl, when that plate is put back together with that gold or that silver dust, the place where the break was is now a place of beauty and that's really where your eye is drawn you say that is just beautiful and that's what jesus does you know the world tells you if you're broken you're damaged goods but jesus says if you're broken i'll heal you and the very place where you were broken in the very place where god has given healing to you becomes the most glorious part about you. On Wednesday evenings, I had the privilege of leading a class where a lot of people are telling their stories, and sometimes they think, oh, I can't tell my story. You know, it's too ugly. But, but when they tell their story about how God has healed their brokenness, it becomes so beautiful. And, and something else, when, when a wound, heal, wound heals, what does it turn into? A scar. And think about how different a wound is from a scar. A wound hurts it's sensitive it's painful you try to protect it a scar it doesn't hurt anymore in fact a scar tells a story um i have a scar on my chest and and i'm not going to be doing any show and tell so just relax here just the tell part but there's a story behind this scar i was when I was in college, I was playing football with some guys in an area where we weren't supposed to play football. It was kind of in the center of the lawn that led to the dorm where I called home for four years. There was a sundial in the middle of that area, and, and the sundial had a really long and sharp point, about that long. And um, it was uh, on a little pedestal, had some concrete around it, and, you know, it, it was about waist high or so, and... And then around that was just kind of a border. I don't remember some decorative stones. I don't remember exactly what it was. But um, anyway, I was running for a pass. And I had my eye on the ball. And coach would have been proud of me. But uh, 
I just kept my eye on the ball, didn't realize I was that close to the sundial. And, and, and I, I came up and I tripped on that decorative border and, and it just, it was like it grabbed my feet and I just went down and I fell on the sundial right on that long and sharp point. And, uh, you know, needless to say, I, I got the point, I got all of it. And immediately those that were nearby and those who were playing football knew that I, I, I needed some immediate medical attention because that, that sharp point had gone through my chest, through my rib cage, and had punctured my lung. And there I was just impaled on that, on that sundial. And, and they called 911 and wasn't long until I was in an ambulance speeding to the hospital. And, you know, obviously, you know, my poor lungs, I, I, I had tuberculosis as a child, and so I've got scars all over my lungs. I've got, uh, you know, scars from this puncture wound and, and all of that kind of stuff. It's a wonder that I can even breathe here or climb mountains. But, but the reason that I, I tell you that is to let you know that that scar not only tells a story, but it also means that the wound is completely healed, and it doesn't hurt anymore. I got the scar, but it doesn't hurt. And in life, when, when your wound becomes a scar, then you can tell other people what God has done in your life, the healing that He has brought. And that allows God to use your scars to help other people who have experienced the same type of wound. I want to kind of hit us home here with a story from the New Testament. It's Luke chapter 24, I think it just ties into the theme that I'd like to try to get across here. The setting is that Jesus has just resurrected and, and resurrection had just happened and people didn't know that it had happened and that Jesus was, was alive again. And, and there were two guys on the road to Emmaus and, and they didn't know that Jesus had come back to life again. And the, the, the guys are really down. I mean, they're bummed and, because they were followers of Christ. And so this, this guy comes up, who is Jesus, and, uh, but for some reason they were kept from recognizing him. They didn't have Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and so they didn't know that it was really Jesus. But Jesus basically says, hey, hey guys, why are you so down? And, and the question sets them off. And it's like this, are you kidding? You've got to be the only one that doesn't know what's going on. Uh, do you have your head in the sand? And and they go on and say, you know, we followed this one Jesus for three years. We thought he was the Messiah. Three days ago he was crucified and, and we're bummed because three years, we feel like we have wasted three years of our lives. How could we have been so duped? And what does Jesus answer back? He says, oh, oh foolish ones. I'd never want to hear that from Jesus. Oh, foolish ones. And he goes through the Old Testament. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament yet. But, but he began to try to help them understand that this was supposed to happen. Jesus was supposed to die. And, and he basically says, guys, you, you must not have been paying attention. Because this has been prophesied. You, you're not reading your Bibles, are you? You, you didn't pay attention. And if you're familiar with the story, in verse 28, it says they were nearing Emmaus, which means they had possibly walked with him several hours. 
They're getting close to home and still not recognizing him. And they say, um, why don't you stay with us for a meal? And he says, sure. Jesus walks in. I want you to listen to this. Jesus walks in, sits down, breaks bread, gives thanks. And at that instant, their eyes were opened. And they saw Jesus. And I think this is a picture of two ways that people try to follow Jesus. The first way is like what happened on the road to Emmaus. Jesus showed up and while they're walking on the road, what's Jesus doing? He's, he's given them some, some history and the facts and information and theology and prophecy. Which leads me to say that that's all some people want from Jesus. You know, Jesus, while I'm on the road, while I'm in the car, while I'm going about my busy day, just teach me some stuff. Uh, You know, help me to get something out of the verse of the day from Caleb. And, you know, while I lead my busy life, feed me, Jesus, or, or just give me a word of prophecy. Some people, that's all they want from Jesus. But the second picture is what took place when they went into the house to have a meal. And there it wasn't on the run. And they didn't just hear theology and prophecy, but they sat down at the table with Jesus and communed and shared a meal and had intimacy with Jesus. So when it comes to your time with Jesus... Which one do you do? Is your time with Jesus on the run? In the car? You know, I've got this 20-minute drive to work, and that's when I do my time with Jesus. Just trying to catch a moment with Jesus on the run. Or do you still your heart and your mind and say, Jesus, come to my house. You know, Jesus, I'm blocking off this time. I'm not going to do anything else. But I'm spending this time with you. And by the way, did you know that the invitation from from Christ is for a meal? Did you know that? Revelation 3.20 says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus wants that intimacy. You know, he's not about just, you know, picking up something on the run and And trying to just say a quick word, a quick prayer while we're in the shower, going to work or whatever. You know, it's okay to pray without ceasing. But Jesus wants some special time with us. He wants to sit down at the table and have some uninterrupted time. So as we wrap things up today, my question is, What is your level of intimacy with God? Is it like God designed there in the garden? To where God said, I want to come down. I want to just spend some time with you every day. And we'll walk and talk together. Is is that the way 
your relationship is with Christ? Or is it like it is for most of us? We're on the run. You know, unfortunately, mankind down through the years has been getting farther and farther away from that ideal. But I pray that we would come back to the heart of God. And that's what God really wanted there in the Garden of Eden was just intimacy with His children. And nothing's changed. That's what He still wants today is intimacy with us. And so I think today is just a call to come back to God. You know, if we've been some of the ones that are wandering further and further away, that we would turn around and come back to God. Let's just bow our heads and spend some time praying to Him. Lord Jesus, I I know that so many of us, we have, we have strayed farther and farther away from You. That really seems to be the story of the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve sinned. They went east. And then Cain comes along and he goes a little bit further east. And then then the people are migrating further and further east. And then you have Lot that goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. And just the wickedness has reached such a high level. Lord, thank you that in the book of Isaiah, that you gave us that promise, that hope of a Messiah that would come, and that Messiah did come, and and he's still available to give us peace today. And Lord, I pray that if there would be some people here today that would be recognized that they need that intimacy, that they would just come back to your heart. Lord, I pray that you would help us to sort through all of the different voices and Lord, that we would be able to hear the voice of God. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to have that time to just sit down with you on a daily basis and commune with you and not compete against the traffic as we're in the car or other activities, but we would just have that time with you. Father, I pray this in your name. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Is there somebody that would say, Joe, I'm not where I should be in my level of intimacy with God. Just pray for me that I would spend that time with Him. Thank you. I see your hand and yours and yours. Many, many, many hands. I'm going to ask you to stand, and I don't feel led to give a strong appeal, but if you want to come and just say, God, here I am. I want to just, I want to just seek you today. I would invite you to come. Father, as we... As we close out our time together, I pray, Lord, that we would take that time to just spend it with you. And God, help us not to move farther and farther away from you, but help us to go back to the heart of God, that place of shalom, peace, intimacy. God, I pray that this week that we would determine in our hearts, we know that it's easy for us to make a, an emotional decision right now. And it's easy for us to say, sure, I'll spend some time. But then tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off and when we didn't sleep well and when we've got a busy day ahead of us, it's easy for us to just say, well, I'll try to do this tomorrow. But I, God, I pray that we would spend that time with you on a daily basis to where we just say, Lord, come on in. Let's share a meal together. 
I want to spend some time with you. Lord, thank you for your presence. Lord, thank you for your mercy that you didn't just zap Adam and Eve when they sinned. And thank you that you don't just zap us when we sin, but you begin calling us back to you. Let us come back to you this week, I pray. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen. Thank you for coming. You're dismissed. Enjoy the beautiful day. Get ready for the snow. It's coming in March. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.